So I also had some experience in prison with indigenous spirituality. When is this going to end? When is the purging going to end? Is this just part of it? Is there actually even a moment when you end? I've met people right, that have done medicine work and they feel stuck sometimes or they don't know what to do after. It doesn't end with the medicine. And that's what I think happens for a lot of people is they somehow think that if I go there and I do this work with the medicine, it's done. So hello and welcome back to our podcast about ayahuasca assisted therapy. And I'm super happy today to be here with Daniel. And this is our first meeting to get to know each other as well. But I kind of followed his work a little bit uh, in in the recent times. And uh, our topic today is really like how to become like a plant medicine professional who helps other people on their plant medicine healing and integration journey and maybe even in the ceremonial setting so as you know um, we have also uh, a free information call about if you feel called to become a plant medicine integration practitioner yourself if you are already on this field then leave a comment or just go to our website avatarhealingarts.com to look up the the date for the next uh, information call but I always think that it's easier to learn from direct examples from other people and what they went through and uh, we can save a lot of suffering for ourselves when we kind of listen to the wisdom of others who went through this journey somewhat already because obviously we're always on the journey so welcome Daniel welcome to the podcast Thank you. Thank you. And uh, really appreciate uh, being here with you. And thank you for the invitation. I, uh, as I had said, you know, uh, this is not something I've done a lot of or, (laughs) but I am really excited to be here and honored, you know, to be able to share my story. And as you said, you know, if we could save some people some headaches and <laughs> uh, maybe some of those why questions, right? Why this? Why me? Why <laughs> this path? Then I think, you know, it's worth sharing uh, one story with others. And uh, I'd be more than happy to start wherever you'd like me to start. <laughs> okay. Um, I always say that to people that you can only take people, your clients, as far as you have gone. And, and therefore, it's very important for any healer or practitioner with integrity to do their own healing work, their own personal self-discovery, healing, um, you know, with the medicine and just in general, uh, obviously. So I'm, I'm interested to know just your personal healing story and what motivated you the first place to go into the healing field, because I know that even before the medicine, you were in this field already as a coach, as a therapist, as a social worker. So what made you to take that path and then how your path evolved you know and brought you to the medicine and how that changed everything I assume (laughs) yes 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 Uh, yeah and um, I think we we spoke briefly right before and I said that there was many many pieces to this and at the same time um, I think my experience has been that we all have a story and yet there's something that weaves all the pieces together and while we are different people uh, from different backgrounds the I think the idea of feeling called comes up a lot that idea of what it is and also what is it right because sometimes we 
course, if we only have ourselves to reflect on, we're not sure, is this a calling or am I being called or is this me or my ego or me making this up in my mind? But um, as far as, you know, my personal history goes, um, it kind of goes back a while. Um, so the initial incipient, I would say, call to help, <laughs> right? There's a sense of calling to help others uh, came about in my mid-20s. And I'm 54 now. So essentially, gosh, a little over 25 years ago. And it happened in the most unlikely setting, I would say, for a lot of people. And at that time, I had uh, gotten in trouble. So I'd been serving some uh, time in prison. Now, uh, just side note, because obviously, there's usually a lot of questions. I won't get too much into that Part of the story, except to say that, um, you know, I came from a very difficult background and made a lot of bad choices, <laughs> one of which was to get involved in selling narcotics. And uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, kind of the South South LA area. So also really well known for violence, gangs, drug. And while I didn't go down the path of joining a gang or anything like that, it was the mid to late 80s. So that specific part of Los Angeles was very, very well known as a epicenter for the drug trade, right? So I kind of got caught up in that really just wanting to find a way out. And for me, finding a way out meant I want to get away from this life that I know growing up. And, um, you know, uh, if I just to kind of fast forward really quick, you know, in retrospect, I was basically uh, attempting to resolve my internal conflicts, right? I didn't understand why life felt so complicated and why um, there was a sense of being burdened by life, but not understanding exactly why. So anyway, I made a lot of choices. And I'm going back to the story, right? I made a lot of bad choices, uh, wound up in prison, got a 10 year sentence. Now, again, not it wasn't due to violence, not due to, you know, having uh, assaulted people. So nothing like that. It was selling drugs, but yet and not, not a large quantity of that in, in hindsight, not a large quantity, but it was what we called here um, in the United States, it was uh, what they called the drug war. So the government had become very, very uh, uh, hard and came down on the drug trade. So received a what by all standards would be a very harsh penalty for what I did. It was my first time uh, getting in trouble that way. And uh now, I found myself in a prison setting. I had the idea that I didn't want to repeat <laughs> this. So I kept myself out of trouble while I was doing time and uh, got sent to a prison camp, right? So I started off at a detention center, went to a uh, medium to low prison facility, and then I stepped down to a prison camp. So it was at this prison camp where I had my first kind of sense of a calling to help others, but it came through a program. So I just so happened again, you know, life, God, spirit has its own way of dealing with us. So I think I had been so focused on just finding solutions because I didn't want to find myself in that same place ever again in my life. So I really utilized a lot of those years in prison, reading material, self-help, spirituality. I attempted to delve into different religious belief systems, right? So the but most people do. So Christianity, Catholicism. Um, I met a lot of people, believe it or not, while I was doing time. And some of those people had uh, backgrounds in as Muslims or uh, Jewish Orthodox even there. It was a very interesting place. Uh, 
also befriended some Native Americans who were doing time. And so essentially, I, I really exposed myself to different belief systems, attempting to figure out, well, what is God? What is the universe? What is my purpose here? And that's actually, I would say, part and parcel, not the place this, generally uh, speaking, would happen to most people. But the 20s, right, our 20s, that age, 20 to 30, can be very much about that, no matter where you're at in life, whether it's prison, in any city, any place around the world, it's really the 20s are about trying to understand and solidify our identity. So point is, I was, I happened to be in one of two places in the federal prison system, only one of two, mind you, in the whole country where they had a program. And so this program um, at the time was through an organization. I don't know if they exist anymore. I think it was called the Kairos Foundation. And they had a program that was called the Life Training Program. It was a week-long program. Um, sorry, a three-day weekend program. Very intensive. We would start at nine in the morning and go all the way up until nine at night. And we had little breaks in between. But essentially what it was, it was like a intensive psychology 101 with a lot of spirituality built into it. So my needless to say, I had been uh, ignoring the program. So I was in this prison camp for about two, three years. And I every year I would say, nope, don't want to do that. That's that's for the other people. The you know back then I would say crazy people or people that are weak minded. But eventually I had a uh, a roommate who I trusted, his older guy, and really really encouraged me to at least give it a chance. He's like, oh, you don't have to say anything. Just go there. You could sit there and just watch. So I did. <laughs> it, it for some reason or another. I think at that point I was really. I had run into a lot of uh, internal blocks where no matter what I read, no matter how much exercise I did, I did my best to eat as well as I could while I was there and did a lot of things. Um, I ran, I jogged, I meditated, but I was running into blocks. And so I thought, well, what the heck? This is, I might as well give this a chance. So that program, there's a lot to it, but let's say... Uh, by the third day. So it ended and it culminated in a type of forgiveness exercise that involved guided meditation, guided imagery. And, um, you know, it just kind of gets you to get you the sense of what it could, you know, kind of why it was so big. For a lot of us there, we were all men, different walks of life, different age group, right? So younger people, older people, um, people from uh, what we would call white collar criminals, people from middle class backgrounds, people such as myself. So it was a very interesting mix. And so it was very beneficial for me to see and hear how these people in my cohort interacted with the facilitator. So there's a lot of um, aha moments for myself. <clears throat> so by the third day, um, let's just say that I had had a lot of mental breakthroughs in terms of my understanding of life, some very things that now for me are very basic, um, that kind of delve into cognitive behavioral therapy and that kind of thing, right? Some, some of those terms we throw around as therapists were being thrown around there. And they, they really helped me to kind of put my thoughts in order. So by, again, the third day, when this component, the final component, came in, I think I was really ready to really forgive. And um, up until that point, I always thought to myself, I don't need to forgive. Why do I need to forgive anybody? Um, I didn't do anything to these people. In this case, for me, a lot of my focus was around my father, who essentially, without getting into all the details of that, but I'm also happy, happy to come back to some of these things, right? So I'm going to run through them a little bit quickly, but then you can feel free to ask me more questions around specific uh, instances in this little journey 
journey of mine. Um, my father basically had divorced my mother when I was two, and I knew he was around somewhere near me because people would mention him, but I didn't know what he looked like, never really had any relationship with him. Although I did briefly meet him once or twice, maybe for all of half an hour or something like that. But I was very fearful and scared of him because to me, he was a stranger. So then, but I also had his name, right? So I shared the name. People said to me when I was a young, when I was young that I looked like him, that I would be like him. So I ended up building a lot of resentment towards this man who people said I would become, but yet somehow he was absent he didn't care enough about me to be in my life. So it was a conflict that I had developed. And I ended up holding lots and lots of resentment towards him. So going back to this program, at the, on the third day, I chose to focus on him during the guided meditation for the forgiveness exercise. And interestingly, I couldn't do the exercise. I attempted to and I just felt blocked. I couldn't connect with the guided imagery. I couldn't connect to any of it. I raised my hand to ask for help. And so somebody came over and they attempted to guide me. It didn't work. They got a little, I guess, maybe impatient with themselves. They probably thought maybe they were doing something wrong. They called somebody else over. That person tried to help me. It didn't work. Eventually, there was a third person and that third person was a female. The other two, I think, were men. And there was just something about her voice. I don't know, something about the softness and tenderness of her voice. As soon as she spoke to me, and then she proceeded to guide me, I dropped in. I mean, I dropped in. I didn't even know what that term really could mean. <laughs> I haven't heard other people talking about dropping in when you're in meditation. I sounded good. I thought I had maybe experienced it, but never quite in this way. So I dropped in and I had this amazing view. Like I could see clearly as I'm looking at you right now, my father and myself, and I could see in that vision myself forgiving him. And as soon as I did that, uh, immediately, it was like somebody turned on a water faucet right here next to my eyes. Tons and tons of tears were just streaming down my face. And then I also had this energy that was just emanating from the back of my neck, from my uh, shoulders. It was like something was being lifted. And I described that really as a, almost felt what I guess in biblical terms would be like an exorcism. Just lots of things left me. And I experienced such a peace and such a quiet stillness in me that I had never, ever, ever, ever experienced. And so as soon as that happened, I heard a distinct, distinct message. I don't know how to describe it because it wasn't audible. It wasn't like somebody's voice, but it was some type of voice. And it basically said, you have to learn to do what these people did for you or over this weekend. You need to learn how to do that and do that for others. And of course, I'm in prison. I'm in my mid-20s. I had attempted to do some college classes because they do allow you to do that when you're in some of these settings. I could never do it. I could understand the information. I could follow. I was intelligent enough to think, yeah, I could do this, but I could never access my memory. Like my short-term memory was very, very bad. So needless to say, I'm there and I'm telling myself, how can I ever accomplish this if I can't really do school, right? Up until that point, I only had a, what we call a general education, uh, forget the last letter in that, but it's basically what they call a GED. It's a high school equivalency certificate. So um, I had this huge, you know, basically revelation or a calling going, there's the term again, there was this calling that I had some point had to help people, but I was still not necessarily in the position to help per se. 
what I ended up doing as I shortly thereafter, I think I had like two years left. I ended up being released. I ended up going back once or twice to help in the prison setting. Shortly after I was released, I was still not certain how to proceed with life. So I had actually blocked out this idea that I was going to somehow become a therapist or something to that effect, you know, because the three professionals, there was three professionals that led that uh, training. One was a licensed clinical social worker. One was a pastoral counselor with a doctorate degree. Another one was a psychologist with a doctorate degree. <clears throat> so when I was out, I thought, well, the least I can do, and you know, I got a job like most people. <laughs> I got out, had some work um, that was, um, somebody helped me actually get the job. And I had a job uh, working as a uh, forklift driver <laughs> in a uh, tile, and they called it a rock and tile store. But um, at the same time, I thought, I, I got to do more than this. I didn't really think, oh, I'm going to go become a therapist. I just thought I need to get to community college and I need to get um, maybe a, a certificate in a trade. So initially, I was going to get a trade school certificate in construction. And um, but I, I, you know, I took that lead and I went there to the college. At the time, it was Compton College. Right. So I was living in Compton California, which is a small city in South LA, still considered Los Angeles. And uh, I enrolled, took one class, just one class. And interestingly, it was in that class where the, the I guess you could still call him a professor, but the, the person leading the class, I don't know if you'd call construction trade teacher or professor, but I'll call him a professor. <laughs> and his assistant, you know, they got to know me over one semester and they really encouraged me. They go, hey, you know, you speak the, you know, you speak English, you write pretty well. Why don't you finish your um, general education classes? So it, at least here in, um, say in Los Angeles, but probably in the States, they call it an associate's degree, right? So it's like basically a two-year degree. And I thought, no, 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 I can't do that. I just want to do trade school. And they didn't let up. For whatever reason, they kept insisting. And I gave in and I said, okay, okay, I'll I'll do that. I'll, I'll give it a shot. I said, but I don't even know what classes to take. I don't know anything. They said, don't worry, bring us the whatever it was, application of sorts. We're going to fill it out for you. We'll tell you what classes to take. I go, okay. All right. So basically, they, they didn't want to give me an excuse to not do it. And lo and behold, one of the classes I took was with one professor. You know, I think I took three or four classes. That professor, um, his name was Larry Jett, ended up becoming my mentor. Not because he was my assigned mentor. He just, for whatever reason, gravitated towards me. He liked me. And he spoke to me outside of class. And he goes, you know, I really like the way you write. He was an English professor. So I had to write a lot of papers, right? For him. And he said, uh, he says, you know, I really want to see you get to university. And I kind of laughed a little bit. I go, well, it would be nice, but I'm not that person. See, so at that point, I still didn't even connect the message I got back when I was doing time. That somehow I had to go to... Uh, become a professional, specifically a therapist. <clears throat> so, you know, I would kind of laugh it off a little bit, but he was also very insistent. And at one point he pulled me aside and he goes, I want you to meet. And he introduced me to a counselor that was his friend. He goes, I'm going to introduce you to this gentleman. And he did. And he said, in front of in front of me. So at some point we met and the counselor was there. And in front of me, he tells the counselor, he goes, I want you to be on the lookout for any scholarship, any scholarships that come across your desk that you think we could help this gentleman with. And of course, I was very thankful and grateful. And I didn't know what to think of it other than, okay, people are trying to help me. I wasn't actually searching for it, but people kept approaching me. And uh, so lo and behold, at some point, uh, Mr. 
Jett, so Larry Jett, calls me over and he says, hey, I got a scholarship. I think this scholarship is the one that's going to help you get to university. I'm still at that point, like not thinking this is real. I actually was a little bit nervous and I really didn't, to be honest, I don't think I really wanted to go to college at that point. I just wanted to finish the trade school, be done with it and go work somewhere and make a decent living, right? That was the the premise for wanting to trade. Well, the universe had other plans. So uh, eventually he, he applied, did the scholarship. It was, um, I think it still exists. It was known as the Bill and Gate, Bill and Melinda Gates Scholarship, right? It was only the second year they were offering this scholarship at that time. And it was actually the last year they were offering it to community college students. After that year, it was only offered to high school. So I got the scholarship. I, I you know, I thought, my God, how, why would anybody want to give me a full ride because it was an all expense paid scholarship given that I had been in prison given that I you know my grades were good though I will say that you know I I did manage to uh work myself and I'm even like taking a deep breath right now because it was so much work I think I had to work three times harder than the average person to get good grades because again my short-term memory was not good I would write papers and rewrite papers and rewrite papers. I probably had to do at least five drafts before I would be done with paper. And there was many, many nights when I wanted to give up. Mind you, I was also in a relationship. So I had gotten married. There's a whole story around that. And this was the my uh, my eldest child's mother, who uh, was, uh, we had been together before I went to prison, right? I We got married before I got out of prison. So in the background, right, I'm going to school, I'm working, and I have a relationship that's really, really toxic. It was a really bad relationship. And there was many, many times when I wanted to quit. It was just so hard. You know, I would, I think it was very common for me to go one or two nights per week, not sleeping, staying up all night doing papers. So again, fast, fast forward to the scholarship. I got the scholarship, but it was a lot of work, right? It wasn't, like somebody handed to. And by all accounts, I really had a lot of reasons to quit. But there was something internally that said, no, 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 you have to keep going. You have to keep going. It was something in my own spirit that said, you have to keep following this trail. There's a trail there. Something started to show up for me. So I got the scholarship. I was one of 40,000 people in the United States that got it which is quite a large number, but still it was a, it was an accomplishment, right? I ended up going to the University of Southern California, a private school. And, you know, I applied to like five or six universities. I could have gotten into any one of them. And I really only picked USC at the time because it was the most convenient. Some people thought, oh, wow, you picked a private university because it's prestigious or has more notoriety. But in reality, I just picked it because it was the closest. (laughs) And I was still basically a family man. And it wasn't until I got to university that I was able to quit my job, right? So I still had to work. And mind you, while I was working up until the, the the scholarship kicked in, I also would work graveyard shift. I always had work. I would work sometimes two or three jobs. And uh, really at the time, you know, people that knew me were thinking, what are you doing to yourself? Why are you working so hard? Why don't you just go work? Why do you got to go to school and work? And there's people who would question me like, why are you in school? You shouldn't be in school in my own family. You know, I didn't come from a family that it was customary to graduate from high school, much less go on to college much less go on to university. So 
<clears throat> I mean, I did get some support in the sense that from time to time, I would hear positive things. But overall, I would say most of the time it was it was like, why? And I also got some pushback even in the relationship, like that actually created things in my relationship, like um, doubt and fear, right? Because again, it wasn't common. And so there was this idea of, are you just go going to college to meet women? <laughs> And I'm like, no, like, why would I be working? You know, so I pushed through all those. So it took from the time I got that first calling till I graduated from school, right? So at, at USC, I did end up uh, pursuing a sociology, a, a bachelor's in sociology, started to do a minor in business, um, didn't finish that part, but I did finish the bachelor's, stood at USC and went into social work. But now the interesting thing is the social work degree wasn't covered by the scholarship. So I had to apply to more funding for more funding. It only covered my undergrad. And there's a whole story there where also other people kind of out of nowhere, seemingly um, found a way to help me so that I could continue school. And so again, from the time I got the calling to the time I finished school, it was 12 years, 12 years. So not overnight. Now there was a little piece that I forgot to mention that was also very interesting. This goes back to Mr. Jet, the man who became my mentor. There was a point during the time he was attempting to help me that he would ask me like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. I had totally blocked out the whole thing about the calling. And at some point he told me, he goes, I'm going to help you. He says, and this is what I see based on what I know of you. He goes, I see you as being one of three things. You can go into uh, like child development and work with children. He says, but you do have this background, even though it's not, you never had a crime with children or anything like that, it still would make it very hard for you. He goes, the other thing I could see you doing is potentially going into law um, to help you know, like with civil rights and things of that nature. And he said, the third thing is a social work. And I had not conceived of that, to be honest with you. So now fast forward, when I got to USC, I had in mind at that point, okay, I'm going to go into the School of Social Work. And even then, other than my one experience when I was 20, somewhat, you know, mid 20s in prison, I still didn't really quite understand, like, what does that mean to become a social worker? Like, I go to school, then what? But by the time I've completed or was close to completing my studies, right? They expose you, you do internships and things of that nature. So I had a sense of what it was like, but then I graduated and then I had to make a decision. I go, well, if you want to be licensed, that requires another two, I think it was somewhere like two to 3,000 hours, somewhere in there to actually qualify to take a test to become a licensed clinician. So needless to say, I I did all the things, right? I got a job with the county, fulfilled the hours, took the test. But again, that was a whole journey. That was like six years from the time I started working with the Department of Mental Health until I actually passed the exam. Once I was able to study and pass, uh, I should say focus on on the exam. Um, I think there was two parts at the time and I managed to finish or pass the first time I took the test with the first half. The second time, I think I had to do it twice. But again, that's something that people probably on average complete in about three to four years. I was still married. I was working now full time. So the idea of studying more was always off-putting. So I kept putting it off. And off. But um, that journey, right? So I, I ended up fulfilling that part of my calling. But fulfilling that part took 10 years in the sense that the other component to helping others also meant that I wound up working for the Department of Mental Health in South Los Angeles. So part of my karmic payback turned out to be 
going back to the same area where I got in trouble and serving other people. <clears throat> now the the connection, because it was it wasn't clear to me like, oh, I'm gonna wind up doing plant medicine. <laughs> right. I I did all the training I could, uh, meaning uh, at least in the conventional sense, it's what they refer to usually as like cognitive based behavioral therapy. So I learned a lot of that. But I was also dissatisfied. There was something like I really couldn't quite get people to where I wanted them. One is, you know, again, without really getting too deep into the political side of it, I just never really felt the system supported me or other clinicians to provide people the best possible care. I just... I just didn't see it. I didn't experience that for 10 years. But so there was always this stirring inside of me. Like uh, I had I had some memories. So this now this kind of links me back to prison, right? In prison, I did a lot of reading. Um, I had roommates who had a lot of books, a lot of magazines. And I recall at times reading books or seeing things in magazines that spoke about shamans and plant medicine. And I remembered feeling really drawn to it. I just didn't know that one day I would find myself in the Amazon. So <clears throat> the other thing I forgot to mention is that during my time at the prison camp, because I was in three facilities, the prison camp was the last place. I got to a point where I was able to do Temascal or what they call uh, sweat lodges with some Navajo indigenous people. So I also had some experience in prison with indigenous spirituality. <clears throat> so now fast forward again back to when I was in prison. I'm sorry, <laughs> when I was working for the Department of Mental Health, I felt like I needed to search outside of the system for for something. Now, initially it wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to go do uh, ayahuasca or anything like that. But I ended up, now mind you, during this period of time, I'm also now moving into a divorce. So that relationship eventually crumbled. I also didn't mention that uh, I'd say I discovered in my 20s, this is going to be a little convoluted because again, there's so many moving pieces to this story, is that I didn't realize until I was in prison and in my 20s that I had basically been severely, severely depressed clinically, but I was never diagnosed with major depression and probably had traits, uh, probably had some traits like borderline, things of that nature. I don't think I was full-blown, but I think I had traits. So now, again, fast forward when the divorce time, that time period came up for me, and I was attempting to end my time in the county department of mental health, it all, again, came kind of like crashing. Now, interestingly, I was able to help. I really was. I was really good. Most people that knew me and knew how I worked with people, uh, although, you know, I would get positive feedback, I often would get from people, you spend too much time with people. Why do you um, get so invested. And I often actually ran into problems in the department because I was always the person who spent a little more time with people. I spent more time on my notes because they were very important that I that I knew where my patients were in terms of their internal processes. <clears throat> but all this was coming down. And interestingly, it was sort of really like what we would call now, maybe in spiritual circles, like dark night of the soul. There was another sense of impending doom, uh, feeling lost again, even though I had accomplished all these things. But needless to say that again, that happened, came to an end. And around the time that relationship ended, it's a little, like I said, convoluted. Like I would say the divorce piece began in 2007. I And it took three years. It was a three-year process. Towards the end of that, I started dating. I just think it's part of life where you know something is over. You do your best to stay vigilant and heal from it. But the line was kind of blurry. So I wasn't sure, am I ready or not? You know, but then I, I just thought, okay, well, I think life 
it's, it's okay to date. So I, I started dating a little bit right before the divorce was finalized. Uh, you know, in, in hindsight, I would probably not do it that way again, but I did. But there was, again, no no malintent other than that's behind me. I'm moving forward in life. So somewhere in my little dating era that came after, I met somebody, right? I'm connected with somebody. We didn't date. We would just talk. Uh, it happened through match.com and uh, we connected right and so one of our main connections had to do with aliens and shamanic things and at that point i had started to think again about that like oh wouldn't it be nice maybe some of those things that i did in my 20s um maybe i'm supposed to look at those again and revisit those and one of the things that stood out and i think that's what drew me back in my mind to connect with the past that way was that being with the navajos in a sweat lodge uh reading some of the books and i back then i had read a lot of carlos castaneda right uh, the yaki indigenous person who led Carlos Castaneda through all kinds of rituals or whatnot. It really fascinated him. So I also remember feeling feeling better. And then of course I had the weekend trainings immersion. So while it wasn't plant medicine based, it was another uh, deeper experience with the idea of spirituality and feeling better and healing, right? So that theme was with me the whole time. And it really served as an anchor. That experience served as an anchor during the whole time I was going through many, many a difficult night while I was in college and university. And I'm not embarrassed to say now, maybe back then I wouldn't wouldn't want to admit this. But you know, as a guy growing up in the hood and growing up uh, you know, like a lot of guys who say, nope, I don't have feelings. <laughs> that had, that was part of my process. So many a Many nights where I would literally just go somewhere and cry. I would just cry so I could feel better. I had years and years of that. But so going again back to when I started dating and I met this individual, we connected around these themes of the unknown, things outside of conventional medicine, conventional treatment. Through that same person, um, we ended up, because we ended up dating, but we also ended up going to Peru for the first time on a plant medicine retreat. Now, because we couldn't quite make it to the retreat, this person knew of a few people here in, in the West, in Los Angeles, who had some experience with the medicine. So then what happened was through her network, we got invited to a ceremony. So even before I got to Peru, we had an opportunity to work with um, Mother Ayahuasca. I, you know, I, I have a very interesting opinion about the whole thing with the shamanic world and facilitators. I'll maybe say something about that. But at the time, I just thought, wow, there's, it's calling us. It's calling. So we went. Amazing experience. It was two nights. And the second night of the ceremony, I remember the same thing happened. It was so fascinating. The same thing that happened to me in my 20s in prison under guided visualization, guided meditation, that breakthrough, and then the the voice, right? The Which I didn't know, I didn't have a name for it back then. Now I would say that was my higher self. That was the higher version of me communicating. But that higher version of me, my higher self, spoke to me again after the second night, the last ceremony, <laughs> after the medicine, the effect of it had pretty much died down. Um, and it said, you need to learn how to do this for other people. Meaning, excuse me, you need to basically um, do the shamanic, right? Or the facilitate <laughs> piece. <laughs> excuse me. I think when I, when I talk a lot, which <laughs> I do <laughs> sometimes, especially when I work with people, my voice gets a little dry. So excuse for that. But um, so it did. So I got the same revelation 
and another here it is right another call it's like oh my god and i had the same experience you know if i hadn't had the experience in my 20s i probably would have dismissed it as no 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 no. that's probably the medicine it's probably the some kind of weird effect i would have blamed something but because i had the experience in my 20s i go oh there it is again right so approximately 20 years roughly had passed since my first calling to my second calling and the same thing i'm I'm thinking how can i do that at the time i shared custody with my children who were younger now they're a lot older and so this was about eight years ago roughly my first ayahuasca ceremony about 20 years had gone by and but i was still had shared custody and this is slightly slightly before I exited the county Department of Mental Health, actually. It was right in that little window. So I hadn't actually left yet, but I was in the, it was in, it was definitely in my headspace that I need to leave. So then, you know, but I questioned it. I go, how am I going to do this? I'm working. I still have a lot of responsibilities, blah, 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 on and on. And then eventually we did make it to the retreat, right? So I was dating this person and I went to the ceremony. Then we ended up in Peru. So in Peru, it was a 10 day retreat. And in between that, also, let me just say that we had other ceremonies. So we continued with a few circles. Then we got introduced to a second circle. And I'd say we'd go like once a month or something like that. And then about a year and a half elapsed until we made it to Peru. And at that point, right, I'm still like purging. I had so much purging. I was usually the person, and I can laugh about it now, who would probably purge the most. And I was usually the loudest purger. And so I always would think, when is this going to end? When is the purging going to end? Am am I, you know, I would also question, is this just part of it? Is there actually even a moment when you end, when it ends? Because you meet different people in those circles, you do kind of can gauge who's farther ahead in their journey, right? And then you come to the idea or the realization that everybody's path is slightly different. There's those people who might just have one journey, one weekend or one week, and they're, that's it. They have other things to do and other callings or other things that draw them in. For me, it was like this real strong sense that I need to keep doing this. So when we got to Peru, it was a 10-day retreat. There was um, four ayahuasca ceremonies. There was, um, a witch, I believe it was a Wachuma ceremony, um, which is San Pedro. <clears throat> and it was the first time I think I got to do five, uh, well, what do they, they call it? The ah, 5MDO. I've never, I've never, yeah, I've only used it once, only that one time. So I've never, yes, yeah. Also all amazing medicine, but ayahuasca was the one that kept calling. Now in that retreat, there's also a story around that. We almost didn't go there. We almost canceled. But I remember saying to this individual that I was, we were dating, I go, hey, we got to go there. We have to go to that place. I don't know why I don't want to cancel. I don't want to reschedule. We went and when I met the shaman, I just had an uncanny feeling like there's something about his energy that I recognize, but I didn't know. I didn't get like a message that said, oh, you're going to work with. I just thought, oh, this is important. There's some reason I'm connecting. Also, again, a lot of purging. (laughs) And uh, during those you know, 10 days uh, or four ceremonies. And even, you know, even uh, fast forward, you know, we're still connected. We still have like a WhatsApp group. Some of the people participated in that uh, week week long retreat. And, you know, it was like, again, like, Olga, this is the guy. He purges all the time. He purges the loudest. Because I would always go in with this idea of like, I want this done. I don't want to keep carrying this. So I had zero resistance per se. And 
eventually, that's after that retreat, I ended up following the shaman back to his indigenous ancestral lands in the jungle. And again, timing. <clears throat> Had we canceled, I would have never met him. Uh, even if we would have postponed it another year, I wouldn't have met him. He was only at that center working as a shaman, right? This was a Western-owned center, <clears throat> which is very common. <clears throat> and they, of course, hire indigenous shamans to do the work. <clears throat> so had I waited longer, I wouldn't have met him. But again, timing. So it just so happens that I met uh, I met him and he was only going to be there for another three or four months. And then he stopped work and he started working out of ancestral village and trying to create his own sin. <clears throat> so I ended up following him there. And <clears throat> really this story, uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. You know, I've been going back and forth, working with him. For the past five and a half years, uh, last year was the first time I kind of stepped into more of an apprentice position. I still have some more healing to do, but going back to the purging, right? Like I, <clears throat> I had even more purges that were super, super strong with him, even more than when I what I had done before. And again, I kept thinking, when is this going to end? And well, all I can say is that at this at this juncture, <laughs> it's a lot less purging for me. Uh, I feel like intuitively. I'm probably somewhere in the 90 percentile range of done with my healing process. And for the first time this year, the plant medicine told me because it speaks to us and it, it reassured me It kind of said, you're almost done. You're almost done. <clears throat> Does it take that long for everybody? I would say no. And yet I don't know, right? I don't know every situation, every case, but I do know everybody has a different uh, journey with their healing. <clears throat> but again, during all this work for myself, I've met people right, that have done medicine work, and they feel stuck sometimes, or they don't know what to do after. And so a few years ago, I started having people approach me looking for some support or some assistance. And <clears throat> while I wasn't done, and I'm not done, I felt I could understand where they were at just by their description. I knew more or less where their block is, blockages were mentally, um, where the resistance was. <clears throat> where the fear was coming from. And so it, it did prove to be very helpful to have all that work under me because now when I do speak to people about their process, if they approach course, you know, I don't, I don't just offer people solutions. I don't actually approach, you know, if people ask, then I feel they are inviting me into their site. <clears throat> then I will, right? I will, I will share some thought. But I feel like there's a sense of congruency and confidence that comes from having done so much work. <clears throat> and it's really, really more clear to me now after having done so much work that everything I've lived, every event, all the pain, all all the suffering, all the setback, <clears throat> they were all, you know, we would think of it also in psychological terms, uh, like Jungian, the Jungian world, right? It's like the shadow, <clears throat> the unconscious, the unknown, the demons, the dragons, the monsters, <clears throat> like you you literally, as you go through life, all the fears and all these obstacles, there is a sense of a, a energy behind that we have to overcome. So some people are more literal. To some extent, having worked with the metaphysics for so long, I do, I do understand that entities are real. But sometimes it's just energy, right? Sometimes it's not a full entity, or often it's not. It's just heavy, heavy energy. And <clears throat> having basically slayed so many of my own demons, and uh, I've had more than, I mentioned one Dark Knight of the Soul, but I've had multiple, honestly, that <clears throat> when uh, people share to me, share their stories about where they're at, I kind of can sense how far they have to go, more or less, right? It's not a quick fix. And <clears throat> That's the one thing about doing this work, you know, the shamans, obviously, I'm still an infant. This is, from the looks of it, probably going to be the rest of my life. And I have so much more to learn. <clears throat> 
And yet I know now having worked with my shaman and being around the shamanic world from the indigenous side, that they also have skills, but they only go so far. Meaning they are not familiar with Western life. Uh, They can heal the energy, but they also have some communication barriers. Yeah, that's something I wanted to ask is uh, uh, if you can talk a little bit about the work outside of the ceremony, because if I understand well, you are training to serve the medicine in a ceremonial setting, and that takes a lot of learning and apprenticeship many years, as you said, and you also uh, assisting people in their um uh, integration process outside of the ceremony so just what do you think how important this work is and do you think people need support with that integration work and it is for you know for most people they benefit from a guide to have them especially the the first time and and how how do you feel you know kind of just the ceremony and the integration the conscious integration working together versus when people don't know about or don't do that part oh my god it's so valuable i'll give you again with you know respectfully i won't give any names but i to give you an idea of how important it is um one of the last people that approached me for help was a gentleman who had spent literally six months in the jungle doing a lot of work. And as you, are, you may already know, right? Like the, um, unless you really work with a shaman, a shaman um, you won't necessarily get all the other pieces to the work, which has to do with the dieting and, but working with other plants and other trees. Cause ayahuasca in the jungle involves all these other plants as well and trees. <clears throat> so, he had done a lot of work and I met him like a year after that when I was, excuse me. And so he went through another month of work and then he contacted and he said, I just, he said, cause we you know when you're there in the setting, you have time and he got to know me a little bit. So he knew a little bit about, but he, he, we never talked about working, you know, I'll let people know that I can help, but I won't necessarily approach them. Right. And so he eventually approached me and he said, you know, I have this strong intuition that you can help. And of course you have a conversation come to find out he said you know the medicine has helped me a lot but my life is still shambled it's i'm in disarray and um, he said the medicine told me what to do and i've done a lot of it but i still can't quite seem to get it to work meaning his life he couldn't put it in order he couldn't find the momentum um he had a sense of direction but he couldn't see the end of the tunnel meaning it just felt still long and dark so we ended up, you know, I, I agreed to work with him. I, I tell people, you know, it's not until we talk that you know if it's a good fit, right? There's this idea that not everybody's a good fit, <clears throat> but if it is, right? So it turned out that we decided it was a good fit. And I worked with him, I think it was about six, no, about four to five months. And I can tell you 100% that he said to me, he goes, this work that I did with you, it was all around the coaching, you know, because when I, like much like most people who help integrate, I bring different tools, right? So there's the mental health piece, which is the cognitive behavioral piece. There's the energy work piece. I also do energy work. And then there's... Uh, a little bit, I depends how you, you know, everybody has kind of their own tools. So I sprinkle in different pieces based on the person. So it's very customized. It's not a one size fits all either. And that's where the experience comes in right after years and years and years of experience. So needless to say, I, I worked with him. I figured out how to 
use what I knew to guide him. And he said to me multiple times, he goes, he says, I, I don't, what well, he said, basically, I, I'm not saying, he would say, I'm not that the medicine didn't work. He says it worked and I needed that. He said, and at the same time, he said, what you've helped me with is just as valuable. Like he, you know, he was saying, I can't say that yours is more valuable than the medicine, but I can't say the medicine is more valuable than what you helped me with. In other words, he needed both. And without my piece, he was still lost. But he, if he hadn't had the medicine piece, he would probably not be able to work with because he just had way, way too many things now. Or it's also not to say that he couldn't. It's more like he probably would have needed to be work a lot longer, right? So the medicine does shorten, I believe, the span of time that it takes somebody to heal. But it doesn't end with the medicine. And that's what I think happens for a lot of people is they yeah. somehow think that if I go there and I do this work with the medicine, it's done. Like it should, it should be done. And no, it, it's a launching pad, right? It can accelerate your, your path, but you still have to learn how to navigate the path. And that's where I think the work that you, you do is very valuable because um, you can read books, right? There's so many books. You can watch so many videos. You can talk to so many people. <clears throat> but in the moment mm -hmm. when things are going wrong or people can't see mm -hmm. the direction or the next step, mm -hmm. people need guidance. And <clears throat> the best way to receive that is from somebody who's been so through. You can't bypass it. You can't skip it. You mm -hmm. can't go over it. You can't go around it. You will eventually... If you are going to walk the path, meaning towards your highest goal, I like to say that there's something out there for you that's very unique and nobody else's. And to get to that point in your life, if that's really what you want, there is no going around it. You're going to go through meaning. Wow. The yeah, yeah, totally. I so resonate with what you are sharing. And I think it's a perfect time to end with this thought for today. Yes, we don't have more time for now, but um, I would love to have you back and continue because there's a lot more to talk about, to share about. And um, of course, this is a topic that we keep continuing exploring and we are doing this podcast to have people to receive more information and to make more informed choices. Uh, on their plant medicine path so thank you so much for sharing your experience and i um really want to ask our audience like what well, just to leave us a comment what you think about uh daniel's uh, path and life journey if you experienced anything similar if you have an incredible story how you know you were called to the healing path and you met with the mother ayahuasca let us know we can bring you onto the podcast but I think you know for me one of the main messages that that as I was listening to your story this this hero's journey uh, and the many trials you know and tribulations and dark nights and the lots of learning and a lot of horror that the universe kept pouring into your way the support and the helpful people who kept nudging you into the right direction. And I think it's, it's in a way, it's all of, all of our journeys, you know, it is like that. But sometimes I think um, just some, some things go wrong and we cannot create a, a, a story like this, but we just stay in that, stuck in that victimhood that, that happens with many people. For me, that was one of the most powerful that the, the thing that the medicine helped me to do to recognize that and to step out of that 
that space, right, where I used to be. And uh, uh, this moment in time in history, so many people are flooding to this medicine in, in, in specifically thinking that this is some kind of magic pill and they just go on a retreat on to Peru and their life going to fix be fixed forever. And this is what I thought as well. So I have to say I, I can relate totally. Um, but but this is not reality. And I think your uh, journey just proves so well that how much learning and experiencing and keep going. <laughs> and yes. It's needed, you know, to step into that that role of serving others and, and supporting others in an authentic way, in an integral way, in an empowered way. So you can really do a good job and, and uplift somebody. First, you have to uplift yourself. You know, you cannot uplift somebody when you are on the ground. <laughs> That's yes. not, not yes. uh, possible, right? So um, just, you know, emphasizing this to people that this is a beautiful path when you are in service to other in this way, you know, in uh, supporting others' healing and, and self-discovery, especially relating to this medicine is so rewarding, is so fulfilling. But there is a lot that goes into that. It's not just, ta-da, you know, it just happened out of the blue. And, um, and we need to honor, you know, this path and the people. And we need to also choose carefully the people we want to work with. So maybe that will be a next conversation, bringing oh, yes. the news from the jungle of who to trust and how to recognize red flags, you know, and all. Yeah, I think we have to do a separate episode about that. But for now... Yeah, if you are if you are interested to work with uh, with Dania, do you have like a website or something that you can share with people how they can connect with you? You know, that's been one thing. I I'm part of a corporation, so I still I, there is a website, but it's not mine uniquely. Right, and that is the one thing that I have not developed. But um, if somebody wanted to contact me, they're they could find the website. I am on there. My phone number's on there. And so the name of the website is Vita Wholeness Family Therapy, right? So Vita as in life, right? V-I-D-A, wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, family therapy. I do plan on actually creating a website uh, because again, right, like what I bring to the table is not something you use in conventional medicine yeah. here in the West. And so that website is strictly still more of a westernized <laughs> approach. Um, so I refrain from posting there what I actually can do outside of that world. And I've just kind of held off for the same simple reason that I felt I wanted to get a little further in my own healing. But now that I kind of feel like I've turned a major corner, um, I feel more it's a it's like the time right like the timing is now right so but people can find me there right daniel alviar a-l-v-i-l-l-a-r and they could get my contact number there and, and then facebook you have a profile on facebook oh yes 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 we're I... gonna share that in the description so you can connect uh, on on facebook as well absolutely and uh, and we, we're going to come back and continue this conversation. So until then, stay tuned. And if you feel called to walk this path of service and to become a plant medicine integration facilitator, then our program starting next year, launching next year with the Ayahuasca Assisted Therapy Facilitator Program. And this will be a more than a year long cohort for 12 people. Well, actually, it's only nine places left now. So... <laughs> 
sorry to sign up um for specially especially ayahuasca integration and that's something that is you know i think very needed you know to have some some professional education in this field so we are excited about that if you want to know more about that again just go to our website and we're going to be back with daniel shortly for more uh wisdom and more conversation so thank you for listening and thank you daniel for being here today thank you again nina it's been such a blessing to be here with you love your energy and love your message so again just sending you all the best wishes and look forward to yeah future contact and have another one of these thank you for listening and leave a comment if you enjoy this episode Help us grow our community by sharing this episode with your friends and subscribe to our channel to receive the latest on ayahuasca assisted therapy. To embark on your healing journey or to start a new career in psychedelic assisted therapy, go to my website, avatarhealingarts.com and get in touch. And of course, stay tuned for the next episode.